Before we get started with today's episode, we want our listeners to know that our hearts and prayers are with Black Americans and all people of color in America. Many people in the birding community, and even outside the birding community, have seen the video of Christian Cooper birding in Central Park and being racially threatened by a white woman who was breaking the park's dog leash laws. This woman's behavior is indicative of the wider cultural racism interwoven into so many facets of America. Few people would be capable of handling blatant racial oppression as gracefully as Mr. Cooper did, but the fact remains that no person should ever have to experience what he did. It's not just the birding community that has been affected by this, though. Police and state brutality have historically targeted Black Americans, most recently with the blatant murder of George Floyd. We support all those who are seeking to be heard and make change through protests with the Black Lives Matter movement, and we condemn any state or social acts of racism. One of our core goals in starting Birdship was to highlight lesser-heard birder voices in an effort to promote inclusion in the birding community and society as a whole. As white women, our voices are not the ones that need to be heard right now. However, we have a platform that reaches hundreds of listeners, and we feel it isn't ethical for us to remain silent about something as fundamentally incorrect as racism. In an effort to show support for people of color, we are running a sale of bird shit shirts, donating all of the proceeds to Black Lives Matter. The sale is live now and ends on June 14th. Grab the link from our Instagram or Twitter profiles, or send us an email at hellobirdshit at gmail.com, and we'll send you the link. Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hey guys, it is Sarah and Mo. Um, We are finally back up to recording. Thanks, Mo, for holding it together for me. Whew, not going to throw up right now. Yeah. This is a little late, but, you know, it's springtime. Feels like summer here in Michigan already. And with springtime, you start seeing those beautiful baby birds. Everybody's getting busy. In today's episode, we are not talking about sex, surprisingly. We are going to talk about nesting and eggs. First comes love, then comes the nest, then comes the egg in the nest. Yep, that was a great rhyme. That was really good. Here, let's see if I can do one. Yeah, you do one. First comes love. Aw, and then comes a nest in the tree. Mom and daddy and baby make three. Aww. Unless you have a giant brood. Yeah, I know. I was thinking of eagles where they lay two and then one of them probably dies. So it's really just three. Yeah, three. Well, as we ease into recording again, we wanted to make sure to share another bird shit story that we received via email. And this one comes to us from Cliff out in California. Let's take a listen. I'm Cliff Holly, and my favorite bird shit story was a time I was out in Grey Lodge Wildlife Management Area in the Central Valley of California, and I was walking in a levee out to a spot where I had seen some ducks, and I looked to my right and I noticed that paralleling my path was a herring gull that was just kind of cruising along one of the, you know, one of the checks, and I noticed it see me. And make a hard left turn and beeline in my direction. And then, like, about 20 feet away from me, it kind of banks and lets loose a huge amount of shit in my direction. <laughs> and I stepped out of the, to the side, and it just splattered all over the, the, the path that I was on. So, a herring gull tried to shit on me. That bird had it out for him. <laughs> It really did. I know. I think that what was like, I can totally imagine a bird like just eyeing down a human and being like, you know what? It's you. This guy. 
Yep, this guy right here. All right, well, thank you to Cliff and to all of our listeners who have shared their favorite stories involving bird shit so far. If you want to share your story with us, record a short voice memo on your phone or computer and send it to us at hellobirdshit at gmail.com. And if you don't know how to do that, we have a story highlight saved on our Insta profile so you can see how to quickly and easily do this. All right, bring on the nests. As we mentioned in both of our beautiful poems, the nest comes first before the eggs. So that's how we're going to talk about it <laughs> in this episode. This is so sequential. Yeah. This is so organized for us. We're doing really good. So we are going to talk about some of the weirder and wilder nests in the birding world. The first bird we're going to start with is the white tern. The white tern, which is also called the angel tern or the white naughty, which, by the way, is such a great name. The white naughty. If I was a ghost, that would be my ghost name. (laughs) White naughty. (laughs) I could totally see that even fitting in at like Hogwarts. You could be like a Hogwarts ghost. Like, oh, there goes old white naughty. Yes, that's exactly what I think of. Okay, well, in this case, it happens to be a bird, a real bird that's alive and has that name. So the white tern is a widespread tropical species that breeds on tropical islands. While most terns nest in rocky slopes and cliffs laying their eggs on the ground, the white tern practices an extreme minimalism and lays its eggs in the trees, like directly on a tree branch without any kind of nest whatsoever. This is my nesting style. Like literally just lay it there and watch it. Don't do any preparation. Just this is it. This is almost just like the bird suddenly decided like it had to lay an egg and it's like, oh, right here. Okay, bye. Females will often lay a single egg directly into a fork or depression on the bow of a cow. Oh, another big word for me. Sound it out, Mo. Cowsuarina? Kaus- Cassowarina? That sounds In good. In the bow of a tree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try it. Though there's a high risk that the egg will be blown or knocked from the branch, it is safe from hungry ground predators that snatch eggs that are laid in ground nests. It is also theorized that the prevalence of nest parasites in seabird colonies may be why the white term adopted this unique nest strategy. No nest, no nest parasites. Genius. Genius. So smart. Just cut the problem at the root. I love it. White terns will lay only one egg that requires 30 to 41 days of incubation. So that's like a long period of time to just hope that your egg doesn't roll off. Dude, can you imagine how stressed they are right now? Just like for 30 and 41 days. It's like when you're playing Jenga and you're pulling out that piece, but you have to like hold it for 30 to 41 days and pull it out so slowly. Yeah, that is an edge Jenga piece. Mm -hmm. So there is obviously a very high chance that the nesting attempt will fail. But fortunately, white terns may breed over a 15-year period, meaning that there is a chance they will find success at some point. So, way to go for longevity. Good job, white tern. Good job. Yeah, well, maybe. Maybe Maybe not. job. Uh, Yeah. Debatable. But interesting job. Points for creativity. Frick yeah. Okay, so the next one I'm going to talk about is, actually has a nest, and it's pretty cool. So this is the hammercop, or Scopus umbretta. The hammercop is a medium-sized all-brown wading bird that has a crest on the back of its head resembling its namesake, a hammer. It is the only living species in the genus of Scopus in the family Scopidae. They are known for building the biggest nest of any bird in Africa, which is sometimes close to five feet across and strong enough to support a human's weight. Okay, if I saw one of these nests, I would absolutely try to climb into it. Oh, oh, hell yeah. 
So pairs will build the nest together and they use hundreds of twigs and other items in the fork of a tree, but they will also build on banks, cliffs, etc. if it's not available. So if you've got the white tern taking all over the forks of the trees, I don't think they live in the same area, but you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. So a pair starts by making a platform of sticks. So this is going to get really intricate because these nests are cool. So they hold them together with mud. Then they build walls and a domed roof. A mud plaster entrance in the bottom leads through a tunnel up to 24 inches long to a nesting chamber, which is big enough for the parents and young. Unusual for a wading bird, the nest has an internal nesting chamber where the eggs are laid. So these nests take 14 weeks to build sometimes, and one researcher estimated that they would require around 8,000 sticks or bunches of grass to complete. Dude, these are like the architect genius birds. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Much of the nesting material added after the completion is not sticks, but an odd collection of random items, including bones, hide, and human waste. A finished nest may contain as many as 8,000 items and weigh over 50 pounds. Oh, my gosh. How big is the bird? They're not that big. No matter how big, though, a hammer cup nest is accessed by only one small entrance hole, just like me. (laughs) Don't lie. Yours isn't small. (laughs) And there's not only one. 24 inches deep. (laughs) Just like the nest. Oh, my God. We are hammer cup nests. That's what women are. Oh, my God. We're just hammer cup nests. Okay. So pairs of hammer cops are compulsive nest builders, and they will construct three to five nests per year, whether they are breeding or not. What a bunch of maniacs. Dude, they just love being busy. Both members of the pair will build the nest, and the building of nests may have a function in creating or maintaining the pair bond between them. Their nests are quite popular, though, and attract a variety of other species, such as kestrels and barn owls, who will evict the residents if they're able. So this is just like the two income household parents who just like <laughs> have to constantly be doing something. They're taking their their little baby chicks to, you know, soccer practice and they're just like constantly renovating their homes. Like that's crazy. Yeah, dude. Also, it, building such a giant thing and building three to five of them and they're like, this may help maintain the relationship. No, absolutely not. If I had to do that with my husband, we'd be divorced. Yeah, that's what they say about renovating a home. Build a new home. Get a divorce. Yes, exactly. No, thanks. <laughs> they have the opposite problem. They're like, if we don't build a new home, we're getting a divorce. <laughs> if I don't have three to five homes by the end of this breeding season, we're done. <laughs> One of them better be on the coast. Got your lake house nest. You've got your urban dwelling nest. You've got like a nest in all of the locales that you could possibly want. One of your like ski retreat nests. I would be very sad if they built all of these very close together. I don't know how far out their range is for where they build, but if these were just like five in a row, I would be like, what are you doing? Major disappointment. This is not like a townhome community. Like, spread out. Explore. Spread your wings. Spread your wings. Ooh, good pun. All right, girl, hit us with the next bird. The next one is the edible nest or white nest swiftlet. So the edible nest or white nest swift is a small blackish brown bird found in Southeast Asia. Its nest is about the size and hardiness of a teacup, and it's made from hardened saliva mixed with feathers, grass, and twigs. The fibers that are created from this mix bind the nest to the sides of caves, cliffs, and other areas such as like outside of houses or in abandoned homes. 
So to make a nest, a swiftlet moves its head back and forth like a weaving bobbin. David Attenborough wrote, The bird starts by flying persistently in front of a chosen site and repeatedly dabbing the rock with its tongue, laying down a curved line of saliva which marks the lower edge of the nest to be. The saliva dries and hardens quickly, and with repeated flights, the bird slowly builds up a low line into a low wall. As soon as this is big enough to cling to, the speed of construction accelerates, and within a few days, the wall has become a semi-circular cup of creamy white interlacing string that is just big enough to hold the customary clutch of two eggs. And this process can take up to two months to build a nest. It's just a spit nest. Yeah, oh, it's a That's spit crazy. nest. That's crazy. Oh yeah, just wait. It gets worse though. It's a lot of loogies. Oh yeah, but as you can guess by the name, edible nest, the nests of these swifts are used in bird nest soup. So this is a delicacy in Asia that is said to derive medicinal qualities as well as being an aphrodisiac. The soup is made by taking the nest and soaking or steaming it in water. Bird nest soup is a multi-billion dollar business in Asia And in some populations, such as Adamon and Nicobar Islands, these nests have been harvested so often that it's led to the species being critically threatened. This was super sad to read about. Apparently, this has also become a business where people will, like, take half of their home and put swifts in it to take their nests, which, like, in some ways I think is probably a little more ethical because generally... They like to let them breed and have the eggs and raise them and then they take the nest. But as you can imagine, mm-hmm. it's dirtier by then. So a lot of times they're going in and stealing nests that birds have just completed before they lay their eggs. You just took that story from like super fascinating to like super depressing. Yeah, that's most things in the world. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Needless to say, I will not be trying bird nest soup anytime soon, but hopefully they can get some more ethically and environmentally friendly practices around it. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on, the next bird we're going to talk about is the European bee eater. This bird is so pretty. Oh my gosh. So it is a colorful, slender bird that has a yellow throat, blue and rusty body, and a black bill. It is a migrant bird of Europe and Western Asia that winters in Africa. And as you might guess, it is an insect eater that catches bugs, often bees, while flying. You're most likely to see the European bee eater in open country areas, perching on telephone wires, or congregating in small groups. But what really makes this bird super cool is how and where it nests. So European bee eaters will dig out horizontal cavities into the sand of river embankments in small colonies. So to build a nest, the bee eater hovers over a suitable site, drills a hole with its bill, and excavates a burrow using its feet to scoop out sand. And it's like a relatively long tunnel that they make into the sand. And then at the back of the tunnel, they lay five to eight white eggs. Damn. As a result of like where it decides to nest, it is super important that the bird chooses the nest site with the utmost care. It's kind of like when you're building a sandcastle, the soil on the embankment needs to be the right consistency that it's soft enough to dig out with their little feet, but firm enough that the tunnel doesn't cave in. So you got to have like the right sand to water combination to be able to have the right hole. I did not know. And also this bird is really pretty. It's super pretty. I know. It wins like prettiest bird award. But also, I just think it's crazy it just decides to nest in riverbank holes. What would have had to develop over time for it to, like, decide, like, what's the best sand spot? Like, that's interesting. Well, even that it even just decided at some point to just, like, dig a hole in a wall. (laughs) (laughs) And decided that was a good idea. This is where I nest now. This is my life. Instinct is weird. 
The next bird we're going to talk about is the common tailor bird. And this bird's nest, hands down, is the nest that I would want to be raised in. Okay, here we go. The common tailor bird is a warbler-like songbird commonly found in parks, gardens, and wooded areas across tropical Asia. It has a yellow-green back, rusty red crown, and a long bill. Fun fact, too, the common tailor bird makes an appearance in Kipling's Jungle Book as a character named Darzee. Ooh. So they're, like, famous. The common tailor bird gets its name from the elaborate way that it builds its nest. The bird will pierce the edges of a few different leaves and then sew the leaves together like a tube using plant fiber or spider silk. Sometimes a single large leaf is used instead of multiple leaves. Either way, it's within this cocoon-looking cradle that the bird builds the actual nest. So because of how it sews the leaves together, the upper surfaces of the leaves face outwards, which makes the nest incredibly difficult to spot. It's basically just like you're looking at leaves in a tree. And the nest itself is also a really deep cup that it lines with super soft materials, which sounds to me like the perfect place for a little baby bird to snuggle up in. Dude, that is so freaking cool that they sew the leaves together. Yeah, they sew them together with like spider silk. Can you imagine? Just like, (laughs) I can't even comprehend how the bird would even get that in the first place, but that's beyond the point. Dude. You should really Google what these nests look like too, because they're so beautiful, but it's weird because... If you didn't know what you were looking at, you wouldn't know you were looking at a nest. Damn. It's not like super obvious in any way. Definitely worth checking it out. Hello, Google. So the next guy we're talking about is the Maley Fowl, which is a ground-dwelling Australian bird about the size of a domestic chicken. Mo, I know you love chickens. Into it. With a strongly camouflaged back and tail. In the most ingenious way, it has managed to avoid the hazardous duty of sitting on its eggs through the incubation period. The male fowl of eastern Australia lays its eggs in a large mound built by the male. To construct the nest, the male ranks the sandy soil to build a mound about 10 feet across and 3 feet deep. In the spring, he'll collect organic material, including rotting vegetation, and fill the mound. The amount of litter in the mound varies, and it can be almost entirely organic material, mostly sand, or any ratio in between. After it rains, he turns and mixes the material to encourage decay, and if conditions allow, he digs an egg chamber in August, which is the last month of southern winter. The breeding season is a very long one, which spreads over five months, and during this time, with the eggs in there, he will have to remain in constant attendance to probe the mound with his bill and test the temperature. So basically, like, he has built this, like, decaying garbage trap, and he puts his eggs in it to keep their heat, and, like, this bird knows how to adjust the leaves, the grass, the sand, whatever is in it to make sure the eggs stay the right temperature. Dude, leave it to a male bird to build a nest of garbage. Yeah, dude. <laughs> dude. Dude, this is insane, though. I, the bird knows. You, like, come up, and he'll be like, okay, it's too hot today. I'm going to move this egg around a little. I'm going to put this leaf over here. I'm going to put that leaf there. Like, it's crazy. And then when the eggs hatch, they can leave the mound unattended. So basically, it, like, takes care of them, and then they're, like, out. Dang. Yeah. I just think about how much work goes into incubating chicken eggs or something. Like, with those little machines and stuff. And this bird just does it with trash. Yeah, he just does it with, like, hot, rotting garbage. Trash bird. Trash bird. What's our, what's our last one, Mo? Our last bird is the Montezuma Oropendola. It is a large black bird with a yellow tail and some super fancy face makeup. It's got a little light blue under eye shadow, a black bill with orange lipstick on the tip, and a little bit of pink blush. Let's just say RuPaul would be very proud. 
It lives along the forest edge, open woodlands, plantations, and semi-open areas in Central America and Southern Mexico. This bird is a colonial breeder, with each colony occupying a large tree, sometimes up to 30 meters high. The dominant male in each colony mates with most of the females, following an elaborate bowing display, which must be impressive to them. The females will weave these long, sack-like nests that hang down from the highest branches of the colony tree. The nests are made from plant fibers and vines that are some seriously big sacks. <laughs> I just love saying that, but... Big sacks. Big sacks. Each nest can be 24 to 71 inches long. What? Oh my god. Yeah, no, they are insane. They're just like these giant... They don't even look like hammocks. They look like those like egg chairs that Taylor Swift has in her house, you know? But just like hanging down. I do not know. I do not know. You gotta check it out. But it kind of reminds me of, like, if you see a picture of it from afar, the nests kind of look like um, tennis shoes hanging down from trees. Oh, okay. Imagine, like, a whole tree of nests that look like tennis shoes. Hopefully that makes sense. So, like I said, there are typically 20 to 30 nests per colony, but the record has been 172 nests in one tree. That must be a lot of weight on that tree. The female will lay two dark-spotted white or buff eggs, and she incubates them without the male until they hatch in 15 days, and then the young will fledge in 30 days. Sadly, nest success is fairly low for the Montezuma orum pandola. The females lay an average of two eggs per nest, but only one is fledged, and only one-third of the nests in the colonies are successful. Oh my gosh. Anyways, these nests are super cool. They look like giant wicker baskets just hanging in the trees. Oh, now I know what you're talking about. No! <laughs> Well, just picture Taylor Swift sitting in one of okay. them, and that's pretty much what she has in her house. That's all I'm going to picture now when I hear the, about this bird. I'm going to be like, T-Swift has these in her house. We've covered some pretty cool nests, and now we're going to cover some of the weirder and wilder eggs in the world. However, before we do that, I thought it would be really cool to take this piece I learned from Tim Burkhead's Bird Sense book, that talks about determinate and indeterminate egg layers, which I will explain in a moment. So this is directly from the book, so I'm going to read a little section. In the 1670s, the naturalist Martin Lister conducted a simple experiment on the swallows nesting near his house, with entirely unexpected results. As each egg was laid, he would remove it, only to find that instead of laying a normal clutch of five eggs, the female swallow went on to lay no fewer than 19 eggs. Oh my god. That poor woman. Oh, yeah. So subsequent tests with other species gave similar results, including a house sparrow that laid 50 eggs and a northern flicker that instead of laying a normal clutch of five to eight, laid 71 eggs in 73 days. I really can't comprehend that at all. So this is where it gets interesting. There are some species, however, like the lapwing, where removing eggs makes absolutely no difference to their final number of eggs laid. On the basis of this, ornithologists have categorized birds as either determinate, like the lapwing, or indeterminate layers, although they have no idea why such a difference exists. I think that is super cool, because you would think all species, if an egg is removed, they would just replace it, like indeterminates. But apparently there are some determinates who, if you remove eggs, I'm not going to lay anymore, and the difference is mind-boggling to me. I want to know why. I'm trying to think of something to tell you to explain to you why but the truth is the world doesn't know twitter do your thing figure this out i just think like if for some reason i skipped my period i would not want to have 
two periods. No. <laughs> you know? No. Like, that's crazy. Dude, yeah, I know. The one weighing, laying 71 eggs, I was like, oh, that sounds terrible. Do you think the bird knew, too? Do you think the bird is like, what the fuck? Where did that go? Guess I'll lay another one. I guess so. Even if it wasn't conscious, it was definitely unconscious of like, oh, well, my body wants another egg. Here we go. Okay. So now we're going to talk about some more specifics in the bird world and egg laying. And we're going to start with the common mirror, which has a weird egg shape. The common mirror is a large auk, which has a circumpolar distribution occurring in the low Arctic and boreal waters in North Atlantic and North Pacific. It spends most of its time at sea, only coming to land to breed on rocky cliff shores or islands. The common mirror has an interesting egg. It's a speckled beauty, which comes close to a point at one end. So it's kind of like got this like oval and then into a point shape. Like one of those like fancy makeup appliers? Yes, it looks like exactly (laughs) like that egg. It looks like that. Good job, Mo. We're all inspired by nature. The dominant theory on its unique shape is that it prevented it from rolling off cliff edges. According to an Audubon article, though, the truth might not be that simple. Tim Burkhead, who also, oddly enough, is the author of the Bird Sense book we just read out of, has studied mirrors for 44 years, and he has his doubts. In two research papers, he's not only debunked the prevailing rolling theory, but it has also laid out his own ideas explaining the egg's unusual shape. First, the bird's nesting ledges are typically cramped, so up to 70 mirrors can inhabit a super small square meter. Whoa. Yeah, there's a lot of trampling, um, and they're also known to be unwieldy flyers, which I think is interesting, um, and causes them to crash land onto other birds' nearby nests. Intriguingly, he discovered that compared to a typical oval egg, the shape of the mirror's egg places more of the shell in contact with the ground, which would help dissipate the force of an impact across its surface. Incidentally, the eggshell is also thicker in part of the shell that touches the ground, leading to the theory that the shape just helps protect the egg from neighbors and clumsy parents. That's pretty safe parenting. Yeah. Like protecting your offspring from yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's more, though. So... Having all of these birds cramped also means it's not going to stay clean. It's going to be gross. So fortunately for mirrors, Burkett also discovered that the greatest concentration of pores is is around the egg's large blunt end that is raised above the ground by the downward angle tip. So this, it supposes, is to help prevent the egg from contamination and to ensure the embryo avoids infection. So it's protecting it from poop, basically. Yeah, basically, because the bottom of the nest is probably where all the poop's going to congregate. But if you keep, like, the area that's the most porous towards the surface, away from all the dirty ground, it's hypothesized that this is how it just stays cleaner. This is just a reminder that we should always question accepted theories as they may lead to new and innovative ideas. And also the common mirror is disgusting and they had to create a new egg shape for their disgusting lives. (laughs) Shout out to Tim Burkhead. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah. Way to challenge the status quo. Disgusting. And also, don't nest in your own poop. Yeah. That's what I learned from that. The next one we're going to talk about is the hoopoo. And I think we've talked about hoopoos on the podcast before, but apparently not because you can't keep a straight face. Dude, I swear to God before we called it a hopo. Or maybe that was the problem. <laughs> well, you know what? We were like really bad at pronunciations today, but that's okay. I know. Not our fault. The birds are so complicated. I know. It's not our fault. Also, you know, when you're spending a lot less time interacting with other people, your pronunciation goes downhill. So we're just going to blame it on that. Yeah. My brain doesn't care how I pronounce things in my own mind. Nope. 
Okay. All right. So anyway, the hoopoo. Hoopas live across Africa, Asia, and Europe, and they have this really distinctive mohawk crown of feathers on their head. They're sort of a light brown peachy color, and they've got black and white markings on their wings. They're super cool looking. The hoopoo gives a whole new meaning to the phrase runny eggs. Gross. I know. I had to put that in there, though. After laying her pale blue eggs in a cavity of a tree, the eggs soon become muddy brown in color. This coloration change is thanks to the female hoopoo's enlarged euro... God, what is it with the words today? Europageal. The enlarged europageal gland, also known as the preen gland. And all birds, by the way, have this gland near their butt, and the gland will secrete oils and waxes that the bird uses to preen and waterproof their feathers. So, you know, it's a very helpful gland. But in the case of the female hoopoo, the gland also produces a dark brown fluid that smells a lot like rotting meat, according to the National Geographic, which I will take their word for it because that is disgusting. You know that this bird got this name because some people were hanging around and they were like, <laughs> they smelled it and they were like, hoopoo, hoopoo. <laughs> it was the bird. This bird pooed and they were like, oh, oh man, who pooed? Who poo? Yep. Super gross. Okay. Yep. But it turns out this uh, rotting meat fluid has a purpose. The fluid is filled with bacteria that produces antibiotics to fight off feather-eating bacteria. Unlike most bird eggs, the hoopoo's eggs aren't super silky smooth. The eggs are filled with little tiny pits on the surface, which are perfect for holding the brown gland fluid that the female hoopoo literally, quote, paints onto the surface of the eggs. Why? Well, it's a little unclear. When researchers limited the female's ability to coat the eggs in gland juice, the eggs had less bacteria on their surfaces, but more bacteria inside them. So it appears that the microbes in the pits and the antibiotics they produce act as a living shield that prevent harmful bacteria from traveling through the egg's pores and into the chicks inside. What's weird, though, is that there isn't a clear conclusion about the impact of the bacteria on the success rate of the hatching eggs, since in the research experiment they did, the females that didn't coat their eggs in bacteria were just as successful as hatching ones that did coat their eggs. Some research speculate that the bacteria helps the birds later in life, so something that they weren't able to test in the research, essentially. But whatever the reason, let's just hope they're not doing it for the rotten meat smell, because that would be freaking disgusting. Dude, that is very interesting that they had a same success rate in their eggs hatching. Yeah, especially when you think about, like, how much work it must be to, like, paint your egg with your own gland juices. Yeah, uh, that sounds disgusting. Ew. Well, now we're going on to the American robin, which we are going to talk about the color of the American robin egg, which, as many of you know, lays this beautiful bright blue egg. So pretty. I know. The coloring of the eggs is due to valverdin, which is a pigment that is put on the eggshells when it's laid by the female. Tests have proven that males use the color of the egg to determine whether his mate will produce healthier babies. Eggs laid by a healthier female encourage the male to spend more daddy time with their babies, feeding them twice as much than their unhealthier offspring. Not only does it make the males more interested, it also protects the embryo from potentially damaging UV radiation. So essentially, this male robin is like, if your eggs look good, I'll stick around. If not, I'm going to be a shit dad. Also, like, how does he know once they come out who is in what egg? Like, that's crazy. He's got to remember. I mean, how many does he have, too? I mean, it's also... I. I'm obviously biased because to me, like, all baby birds would probably look the same. But you probably recognize your own kids, I guess. You're probably like, oh, yeah, like, that's Johnny and that's Susie. And Susie came in the dark blue egg, so I'm going to pay attention to her. 
But I just thought that was interesting that the egg pigment is what kind of tells the robin which ones he should focus more on raising and which ones are like most likely to be like survival of the fittest. And let's just note that like the female obviously doesn't care and loves them all equally like a good mom. There's no middle child syndrome here. No. So that's American Robin, which I thought was cool because that's a one I see all the time. Yeah. And most people, I think if they are familiar with a nesting in their neighborhood or something, it's usually an American Robin nesting nearby. Okay. We got one more. We got one more. And I got to tell you, when I was researching this one, this one literally, my brain exploded a little bit. And part of it is because I'm pregnant. And the way that they talk about this is just like nuts. Okay. So the last bird we're going to talk about is the kiwi. Ugh. Okay. So ostriches, as we might know, lay the world's largest bird egg. But in reality, it is the smallest egg size in proportion to the mother. An ostrich egg really is equivalent to 2% of the body weight of an ostrich mother. By comparison, a baby at full term in a human is about 5% of the mother's body weight. So imagine the pain and suffering a mother kiwi goes through carrying around an egg that takes up roughly 20% of the mother's body. On top of that, a female kiwi can lay up to 100 eggs in her lifetime. Oh my God. So like, picture like the most pregnant woman you've ever seen. And that's 5%. Yeah. Make her 15% more pregnant. Yeah. And that's the kiwi. You should Google like kiwi egg because they have like a skeleton picture. And it's like the egg is just occupying like the entire rib cage of the kiwi. Like the the bird is like 100% egg. It's nuts. So as a quick refresher for people who aren't familiar with kiwis, kiwis are flightless birds that are native to New Zealand, and they're roughly the size of the domestic chicken, and they're brown, and they're kind of fuzzy looking for a bird, actually. They're so cute. Love me a kiwi. Okay, so going back to the crazy eggs, these eggs are freaking huge. They're roughly six times larger than the eggs of birds similar in size to the kiwi. What's the advantage? It seems to be a trade-off between easy parenting and brutal egg laying. Most bird eggs are 35 to 40% yolk but the kiwi's egg is 65% yolk. Whoa! The nutritious yolk produces kiwi chicks that hatch fully feathered and independent, sustaining newly hatched chicks for the first week of their life. In other words, like a newly hatched kiwi doesn't need to eat for the first week. And by that time, the chicks can provide for themselves and the kiwi parents seldom even have to feed their babies at all because they spend all that time carrying around the world's largest egg in their gut. The jury is still out on why the kiwi's egg is so large. Some research believe the kiwi has always been small and the egg size has increased over time. But the more likely explanation is that the kiwi was once much, much larger. And even though the bird shrank over time, the egg did not. This is because gradual evolutionary changes to an adult bird's features are more likely to have survived than changes to the egg. If the latter theory is true, the kiwi's ancient ancestor would probably have been about the size of a cassowary, reaching about one and a half meters tall. Damn! It always comes around to the cassowary on this podcast. It always is about the cassowary. It is the ancient father of all. I just cannot imagine carrying an egg that big. I can't imagine as the kiwi either being like, okay, I am so small now, but I still have this fucking large egg. Why? Why? But then once you get rid of it, you're like, oh, I don't have to do anything. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) That kind of sounds awesome. Like, it's probably uncomfortable for a while, but then you're like, All right, see you soon, kid. Bye. And I don't know anything about like the gestation period or anything, like how long they have to put up with this freaking huge egg in them, but it's got to be a while to develop all that yolk. Like, yeah. Oh, I'm really glad they don't serve kiwi eggs at brunch. 
Can you imagine? You'd be like a normal 12 egg omelet. It's like we use one kiwi egg. And, and it's mostly yolk. Hope you like yolk in your eggs. It's all yolk. Dude, this was interesting. We have done just a small dive into the world of nests and eggs, but I feel like I learned a lot. I feel ready to peep on some birds' eggs and nests. Oh, as a reminder, if you are bothered by a bird nest near your house and it's not really in the way of anything or causing any danger, don't move it. I'm pretty sure all these people who listen know that, but don't move it. They'll be gone soon. Just leave it. Enjoy this beautiful piece of nature that has come to your house. And Sarah, what do you do if you find a baby bird on the ground? Uh, you generally leave them be unless you can tell they're injured because you have fledglings, which generally fall out of the nest and are unable to fly yet, but they do have some of their feathers. So unless it is very obvious it has no feathers and you can't put it back in the nest or find the nest, leave it be. Just leave it be. Let it be. Let it be. Yeah, because a lot of, I feel like, rehab places get calls from someone who's found a baby bird hopping around in their backyard, and they're like, oh, it can't fly, it must be too little, and it's overwhelming for nature centers, so just remember, unless you know it's obviously injured, keep an eye on it, its mom and dad will probably come by and be feeding it. Yep. I hope everyone learned something today. I did. Yeah, I learned so much, and now I'm like, oh, I know all of these things, and now I want to kind of build three to five houses. (laughs) with mud and 8,000 sticks. 8,000 sticks, please. That's what I'm going to go to Home Depot and be like, I need 8,000 sticks. Of varying size and shape. (laughs) And maybe some human feces too. And bones. (laughs) You sell all that here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Nest Depot. Oh my God, I can't believe. Yeah, that would be great. Now I want to open Nest Depot and it'll be like a cute homeware store. Oh. Yeah. I'll be your saliva provider. Hell yeah, girl. Yeah, I'll just go licking your walls. Oh my God. Uh, we have Mo over here demonstrating <laughs> how you'd hang this painting. Mo, can you please show? Me and my sticky spit. Yeah, I can see this going really far. This is successful. Maybe we should back it up and tell people that if you want to find us on Instagram, you can find us at Birdship Podcast. We're also on Twitter at birdship pod or you can send us an email hellobirdshit at gmail.com and yeah send us all your cool bird stories or just like say hey because we like getting emails emails are cool yeah emails are fine um also if there's a topic you would like to learn more about and have us research we are totally down for that so send us ideas whenever all the time every day dtr down to research the most accurate way to describe whatever I'm down to research I'm DTR down to research anything well yeah I guess you probably would actually I was gonna say watch what you say but then I'm like no you probably would I would all right until then keep your eyes to the skies